My name is Phil Stinson. I'm joined today by my colleague Adam Watkins. Both of us are on the faculty of the Criminal Justice Program at Bowling Green State University. Recently, Adam and I conducted a research study on the nature of crime by school resource officers, and I've asked Adam to join me in a discussion today about our recent research project. Adam, if you could get us started by talking about the motivation for this research project. Well, the primary motivation for the project was related to the growth and the use of school resource officers over the last two decades or so. Up until that point, historically, schools have handled disciplinary and security matters internally and have not relied on law enforcement to address those respective matters in schools. But related to the passage of the Safe and Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act of 1994, which emphasized the presence and the availability of drugs and guns in and around schools, federal dollars were invested in addressing those respective matters, and some of those fundings were used to hire sworn police officers to be placed in schools. And really since that time, there has just been considerable growth in the use of school resource officers or law enforcement personnel in schools. But despite that growth, there really has been no strong systematic academic research related to that growth. We've been very, very slow to address the utility or placement of uh, school resource officers or law enforcement personnel more generally within schools. Over the last uh, year or so since the uh, shootings in Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut, there seems to be a renewed emphasis and interest in placing police officers in schools as school resource officers. And most recently, there was a shooting at Arapahoe High School in Colorado the first officer on the scene was the deputy sheriff, school resource officer, who was in the school cafeteria at the time that the shooter entered the building and was the first officer on the scene. So we see this renewed emphasis. And in there, in fact, the response was quickened in the confrontation between the officer and the young man with the shotgun, the shooter, was very quick, a very quick response. So we see this time and again, this renewed emphasis where there's a real interest in the public and in the media in placing officers in schools. But does it make a difference? And we don't know. I mean, at this point in time, we just simply don't know. Generally speaking, we haven't had uh, studies undertaken with strong evaluation designs that would allow for us to answer those questions. And in fairness to school resource officers, while we have seen growth in these sorts of incidents, nonetheless, statistically speaking, they, they're still relatively rare. And as you can imagine, placing sworn police officers in a considerable number of schools nationwide from a cost-benefit standpoint it is not cheap. And you're trying to prevent what otherwise are statistically relatively improbable events. And saying that, I don't, I don't mean to trivialize their significance or relevance, but it's just you're placing a whole lot of personnel, law enforcement personnel in schools nationwide, to try to prevent relatively infrequent events. And as many people have pointed out, simply from a cost-benefit standpoint, it would, you would probably be better served placing those officers in high-crime neighborhoods, for example, out on the street where serious crime is more prevalent, that those resources could be better served. But as you can anticipate, uh, many school districts throughout the country uh, from parents, from politicians, are under a lot of pressure to do something or at least give the impression that they're doing something. I think that's, that's absolutely true. What does the research tell us about what school resource officers typically do during their workday? It can vary fairly considerably. 
the primary model that's generally advocated now is sort of a 50-50 approach, and by that I mean 50% of their time would be directed toward traditional law enforcement functions in terms of just general patrol in and around the school and perhaps basic investigations. Much of that would be related, related more so to perhaps property crime or more trivial interpersonal activity crimes that occur within the school setting. And then the other 50% would really be directed toward mentorship, counseling, and perhaps spending some time in the classroom teaching classes related to, you know, things that you could do to, you know, protect yourself from bullying, from victimization, uh, some of those sorts of things. So that tends to be the approach. But it, it is worth mentioning that the anecdotal evidence that we do have suggests that it can vary pretty considerably. Some schools, SROs, are taking on very minimal traditional law enforcement functions. In, in other schools, as much as 80 to 90 percent of their time is falling within traditional law enforcement functions. We typically see that schools attempt, as well as local law enforcement agencies, really try to advocate for this 50-50 approach. Well, how were crimes on school property handled prior to school resource officers being placed into schools? What I'm concerned with is are we actually criminalizing or, or sending kids into the juvenile justice system that normally would be handled internally as discipline matters in schools? Is that, is that an issue? It has been. It, you know, there's a lot of speculation that school resource officers have contributed to the increase in school crimes or school crimes being handled in the juvenile court, which again has traditionally not been the case. Schools have traditionally always or primarily dealt with disciplinary matters internally. But again, really beginning in the early 1990s with the adoption of zero tolerance policies, uh, we did see a considerable influx in some primarily urban school districts and the number of kids showing up in the juvenile court for disciplinary matters related to school. Uh, and there has been subsequently some pushback from juvenile courts in terms of, you know, really telling school districts that they, they need to, to take greater ownership over those incidents again, that juvenile courts have finite resources uh, and they don't want to be spending a lot of those resources dealing with incidents that were traditionally dealt with by schools. To what extent, however, school resource officers have contributed to that influx is a little bit unclear. Most would speculate that they have but we don't have strong evidence suggesting that some of that activity would have happened independent of any school resource officers. That is, schools are uh, certainly at fault to some extent as well in terms of adopting zero tolerance policies and just waving kids into the juvenile court independent of the presence of school resource officers. So there is speculation that SROs have contributed to that issue, but we don't have good evidence sort of validating that point. Let's talk a little bit about the methodology for the present study, and this is part of a larger study on police crime, that is crime committed by police officers. And in our larger data set, which includes officers' arrest cases from 2005 through the year 2011, and in the larger data set, we currently have 6,239 arrest cases involving 5,183 sworn law enforcement officers at non-federal law enforcement agencies, that state, local, and special law enforcement agencies across the United States, employed by 2,423 law enforcement agencies in 1,161 counties and independent cities in all 50 states 
and the District of Columbia. So this is a content analysis research project. We rely heavily on published news accounts, news articles. We have 48 automated search terms that constantly crawl the Google News search engine and uh, send us back hits with the Google Alerts service. And then eventually we code, index, and archive these cases. So while the larger data set for that period of time, 2005 through 2011, involves over 5,000 sworn law enforcement officers, 5,183. We're looking at a much smaller sample of law enforcement officers who are arrested in this study. And specifically, we're looking at school resource officers, officers who are deployed uh, mostly in the public schools across the country, and looking at the type of crime that school resource officers have been arrested for. And we wanted to look at whether that varies at all, whether the nature of the crime by school resource officers, the crimes that they get arrested for, is different from the crimes that other law enforcement officers get arrested for. So could you talk to us a little bit about the results? From 2005 to 2011, we identified 52 school resource officers that were arrested. Uh, So it is certainly worth mentioning that we identified a relatively small number of SROs uh, nationwide that were arrested. We don't have a good sense as to the number of SROs that there are nationwide. Uh, Some of that is certainly related to the fact that the growth has been so rapid uh, in the last couple decades. Numbers estimate, and this would certainly be an underestimate, uh, of about 17,000 SROs employed nationwide. Uh, so an N of 52 in this case, would, uh, I guess the good news would be is a small number of SROs were actually identified as being arrested. Uh, all of those 52 SROs were male. They typically had 10 years of law enforcement service, uh, and they were roughly 40 years of age. Uh, and we found that the demographic profile of the SROs was very comparable to the non-SROs or community-based law enforcement personnel that were arrested as well. In fact, demographically speaking, they were were basically identical. In terms of the the nature of offenses for which SROs were arrested, what separated the SROs from community-based police officers uh, was that the nature of offenses for which they were arrested, basically 62% of them were arrested for a sex-related offense and most of those offenses primarily involved a teenage victim, in this case, presumably somebody that the SRO came into contact with as a result of their employment. Uh, When we looked at the community-based police officers, we found that about uh, one in four were arrested for a sex-related offense, but typically they did not involve teenage victims and wasn't really an extension uh, of employment per se. So What really separated the SROs in this case was the nature of their offenses being primarily sex-related involving young adolescent females. In terms of the officers who are not SROs that were arrested, there are a a good number of cases that involve uh, sex crimes with teenage victims where police officers are arrested. I'm talking about the non-SROs. But the difference, I think, in those cases were that from the best that we can tell in the studies that we've done on sex offenses by law enforcement officers is that typically those victims in the other cases were teenagers and children that the officers came into contact with outside the scope of their employment. The only exception to that being in the cases that involved teenagers who were involved in the uh, scouting program, the law enforcement exploring program. 
you know, one thing about the incidents uh, involving the SROs would be that the incident for which the officer was arrested typically had a tendency to occur away from school. So when physical sexual contact did occur, the cases that we took a look at, that physical contact generally uh, occurred away from school and did not generally happen on school property. But there would certainly be good reason to believe that there was an escalation of events prior to that incident in terms of things that may have been occurring at school beforehand to perhaps establish what eventually developed into an inappropriate relationship and perhaps an opportunity there to intervene in those respective incidents. In the cases in our other studies that have involved officers who were arrested for sex crimes with teenage victims, so we're talking, again, non-SROs, in those cases, the kids, again, with the exception of the Explorer Program cases, those cases typically involve kids that the officer met through their personal life. In other words, you know, a stepchild of the officer, the teenage daughter uh, or son of the uh, officer's girlfriend, that type of thing. And in these cases, it's clear to me that the kids, the victims in these cases, were only known to the SROs through their employment. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting as well in the sense that a lot of times, a lot of the concerns I think that would lie with the placement of law enforcement personnel in schools might deal with some of the inexperience. But again, demographically, uh, these officers had quite a bit of law enforcement experience, and it does, I think, speak to some extent to some of the concerns associated with the placement of uh, officers in a school setting that's not simply overcome by law enforcement experience. You know, that is, in most cases, these individuals had, you know, roughly 10 years of law enforcement experience. And you might think to yourself, well, given that experience, these individuals might transition relatively easy into a school setting. Uh, and perhaps that would be a segment of personnel that would not necessarily need additional training. But I think what our results suggest is that even when you're talking about the placement of relatively experienced law enforcement personnel into an educational or academic setting, there's still need there uh, to have those individuals trained and prepared for some of the things that they're going to be encountered uh, within that respective environment. Do SROs typically have the same training and college education major as high school teachers? Uh, no. SROs are, are essentially trained like a patrol officer. Now, most school districts, in some cases, require uh, that SROs receive some additional training, but we typically find that that additional training is about 40 hours. And in some cases, they don't even get that additional training because of budget shortfalls or logistical problems in terms of the training uh, not being close by. So if you're not, you know, immediately adjacent to a major urban area where these training opportunities tend to be more accessible, in some cases, even though those SROs were expected to get some form of additional training, in some cases, it just simply doesn't materialize. And this has been talked about fairly extensively more generally with even patrol officers in terms of just being trained and prepared to how to deal with young people, whether that be on the street or in the school setting. Barry Feld, for example, has talked extensively about uh, interrogation tactics uh, in training police officers and using those tactics uh, with young persons. And we don't typically find that 
uh, those tactics are adjusted in any way for the maturity or development level uh, of the individual being questioned. So th there is definitely room, I think, or opportunity to try to permit greater training or greater access of training uh, to individuals, law enforcement personnel that are being placed in a school setting. What are your concerns in terms of looking at the uh, results here? What sticks out with being the biggest issues for you? And maybe you could talk about some of the policy implications in more detail. Two immediately come to mind, one being the training, and that's been underscored before in terms of just doing more to prepare law enforcement personnel for the academic setting. Um, and it is worth mentioning as well that the a nature of offenses for which SROs were arrested is very comparable to the nature of offenses for which teachers are arrested, which is probably not all that surprising given that they're working in the same environment. A number of national surveys that have been done of adolescents, particularly in high school, questioning them about inappropriate remarks or contact that they have with academic personnel. And what we find is that it's not uncommon. We know that in most cases, adolescents never indicate that to any authority figure in a school setting. That is, uh, to the extent that inappropriate contact does occur, it's not of a severe enough nature to where the young person feels the need to report it. But we do know that it happens, yet we have identified it to be a problem within particularly the high school setting, yet even school teachers for the most part receive very minimal training has been identified in terms of maintaining appropriate boundaries with students and being trained on relational boundaries. And I think while even though the number of SROs arrested for this type of incidents tends to be very small, I still nonetheless think that it underscores the importance of SROs getting that training as well. This was raised, understandably so, in a number of the reports for which SROs were arrested in the newspaper articles in terms of, well, how adequately was this individual being supervised? And what we know, again, we only have a little bit of anecdotal evidence here, is usually the immediate supervisor of an SRO is a law enforcement person. Uh, that responsibility typically has not lied with school administrators. Now, school administrators generally know what SROs are broadly doing within the school, but typically the primary responsibility for supervising SROs lies with the local law enforcement agency. Uh, sheriff's office, for example. But usually that supervisor is not located on site. Uh, so they're not around regularly to sort of ensure and to monitor the SRO. And there have been some serious concerns raised about the level of autonomy that sometimes SROs have in the school setting and to what extent that they're being adequately supervised. And I think that the nature of these reports, these paper reports, underscored that point as well in raising these sorts of questions and has become more common in law enforcement in terms of these early warning systems uh, that are being employed to identify police officers uh, that may, may be problematic in trying to intervene early. Obviously, the success of those are contingent upon being adequately supervised. And there are lingering questions about to what extent SROs are being adequately supervised. And I think perhaps indirectly our study uh, understores that to some extent. So I, I think the two primary policy implications are the training and ensuring that 
we have adequate supervision of SROs in the school environment. And you could make the argument that that's all the more important if SROs are not receiving adequate training beforehand in terms of ensuring that they're being supervised properly. What's next in terms of suggestions for future research? Does anything stick out to you that would be an area that needs to be looked at to increase our knowledge of problem behaviors with school resource officers? Absolutely. There, there is tremendous need for more systematic research on school resource officers. And in theory, what we see taking place now would offer a great opportunity to maybe do a better job systematically assessing the effect that SROs have on the school environment. For example, many states now, Ohio being one, are investing state dollars into greater placement of SROs, uh, not only into high schools and middle schools, but elementary schools. One effect that Sandy Hook shooting had on the placement of SROs in a school environment is now we're placing SROs increasingly within elementary schools, which have traditionally been off limits for school resource officers to the extent that they have been placed in schools. It has been overwhelmingly in the middle school and in high schools. And so one thing that we could do, theoretically some states could do, by making these investments and placing more school resource officers in an academic setting is having some form of systematic assignment. Politically speaking, that's tough, however. Most schools, if they can have a school resource officer, want them. But if we're going to allocate these dollars, states could systematically place some school resource officers in some schools and not in others. And that would offer an opportunity to assess the effect that they would have on the school environment. Unfortunately, because of how politically contentious this is, it's doubtful that that will happen. But it would offer an opportunity because... I unquestionably foresee additional school resource officers being placed in the school environment over the next four or five years. We know so little about what effect SROs have on the school environment. Well, what you're talking about there is essentially setting up an experimental or quasi-experimental research design. And I think you're right that because of tragic recent incidents with shootings and not so recent incidents going back over the last 10, 15, 20 years in this country, at schools, it would be a hard sell to get school administrators, school board members, local politicians, agency heads, and other stakeholders, parents, students, to agree to a random assignment, that <laughs> yes, kind of a thing. Yes, it, it does offer a good example of how we would like to go about it from a research or academic standpoint, but politically speaking, is probably not viable. Uh, even though you and I as taxpayers and the general public would have interest in knowing whether or not the placement of SROs in a school environment does have a beneficial effect. We should have interest in answering that question, but the political dynamic makes it very, very difficult. Well, I think the problem is in terms of knowing if SROs are effective or the deployment of SROs in schools are effective. Typically, in an evidence-based model, we'd want to answer the question of what works. But here, I think the problem is we not only don't know the definition of what, we don't know the operational definition of works. In other words, a strong argument could be made today that the school resource officer program at Arapahoe High School in Colorado worked because the school resource officer immediately being on the scene and able to corner and confront the teenage shooter brought that to a quick resolution. Unfortunate, tragic resolution. He killed one student, Claire Davis, and then took his own life. 
but that's a change from prior years where responding law enforcement personnel and paramedics would wait on the outside until they got the all clear to go in, that yeah. type of thing here. We're confronting the active shooter in that scenario. So an argument could be made that the school resource officer program there works on that basis alone. It didn't completely eliminate the loss of human life, yes. but it certainly could have ended up a lot worse. But what you're talking about is on a much bigger issue and looking at the policy issues on a much broader level. Is it appropriate to have law enforcement officers in school where small discipline matters are now being criminalized or at least brought into the juvenile delinquency system? I think also there are policy issues as to whether it's appropriate to have non-teachers teaching our kids, which often happens with school resource officers. They end up teaching. And then they also end up, under the guise of questioning and interrogating, they end up one-on-one -on -one situations behind closed doors counseling vulnerable teenagers, which in these cases, at least in these 52 cases that we're dealing with, obviously started in that sort of a context. And there are great questions as to whether that's appropriate and whether police officers deployed as SROs have the appropriate training, education, experience. Uh, they certainly are not trained guidance counselors. Absolutely not. And I think perhaps, at least from my perspective, what makes this an all more important question is given the broader education context, and that has been well identified since the Great Recession of 2008-2009 because of declining tax revenues, many school districts have had to make deep cuts to support staff. Uh, those individuals explicitly placed in schools for reasons of counseling, tutoring, intervention specialists. Many schools have had to cut back on those respective personnel, yet are now being forced to have to make this investment in law enforcement personnel. And there have been many education advocates that have pointed out, could those monies be better spent by rehiring back individuals that were trained explicitly to work with young people in an academic setting. I do get the sense that perhaps what could be happening here is that such security personnel, SROs, are now just equated with the price of doing business and that we may never sort of systematically make an effort to answer the question as to whether or not SROs have a beneficial effect in the aggregate sense on the school environment and broader disciplinary matters or issues uh, that happen in the school context. So given that context, what can be done to reduce the incidence and prevalence of sexual victimization of students by school resource officers? To some extent, SROs have been a bit of a, a political volleyball. My own feeling, and I, I stress that, and this is independence of our study, is I really do feel or I would like to see schools take greater ownership over SRO programs. And in some cases they do. But typically SROs in the monitoring of SROs, that responsibility has primarily lied with local sheriff's departments or local police departments. But my own feeling is that it's their house, their rules. But it hasn't worked that way. We have seen some conflict in terms of the way that, and this has been documented in a number of ethnographic qualitative studies that have been done with SROs, in terms of conflict between police administrators and school administrators in terms of how SRO programs should be managed. School districts 
should take on that responsibility, but there has been a reluctance on the part of police departments to relinquish that responsibility. And understandably so, it's their personnel, and in some cases they're flipping most of the bill that they want to have that responsibility. They sort of view it as an extension of community policing efforts in the community. But I really do feel like it just strategically makes sense to me that school districts would be taking greater ownership over those programs. And to some extent, it's not because they don't want to. It's just because of the nature, in some cases, of the political contention between local police departments and school districts and taking ownership over those programs. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Lost podcast. This project was supported by award number 2011-IJ-CX-0024, awarded by the National Institute of Justice, Office of Justice Programs at the United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. For more information on our research project, please go to www.bgsu.edu forward slash police integrity lost.